everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. My name is Kendra, and I'm a part of the core community of CMYK. We're a bunch of people in Billings, Montana, creating space and community where belief and doubt move forward together. Before we jump in, I want you to know that everything we do as CMYK depends on the generous donations of our local and online community. People just like you, who are working with us to live a more beautiful way forward together. So if you love what CMYK is up to and you want to be part of the community on a financial level, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to cmykchurch.com. Through your donation, we are able to continue our work and give away more and more to those in need around us. You can easily give a one-time gift or choose to be a regular part of our creation through a monthly gift of any amount. To those who are already giving, thank you. With that, let's jump into this week's talk. Hello, CMYK family. Welcome to another CMYK Talk podcast. My name is Seth. It's good to be with you. Um, Yeah, how are you? I hope you're well. Yeah. Um, Well, we're going to get going here. For a split second there, I lost my train of thought. My bad. Uh, But I'm back. Um, Really, I hope you're doing well. I hope wherever you are, wherever you find this that you're doing okay um yeah we've been talking through this series called whole there's this conversation that matt started as we walk through the the gospels found in the um judeo-christian text called the bible these things called the gospels that uh, the question is like what if what if there's this way for us to become more holistic creatures if you will which is a really good question. So Matt's tackled a couple of these questions while looking at some of the gospels. Um, you know, some of them being, you know, uh, one of the questions being how do we face change and kind of looking at the the gospel of Matthew and part of the question there of how do we, how do we face change with these um, people in Antioch, I believe. And then, you know, what do we do about suffering? How do we face suffering and um, looking at these people in Rome, these Christian people, uh, two really good uh, conversations. If you want to go back and listen to those, they're really good. Um, but ultimately, the way we face change is to be present, as Matt talked about, and acknowledge that there's something here and that you can handle this, that in the midst of change, there's this, like, you've got what it takes, if you will. Um, and then in the midst of suffering, there's this reality that we need to be honest in the midst of it. Um, and gosh, if you haven't listened yet, um, that Sophia has this fantastic talk last week two weeks ago something like that that's just it's phenomenal about suffering you should go listen to us really good um but today as we continue this conversation um the question is well what what happens after change and suffering um because this next step through this holistic process is to ask what's next after things like change and suffering um and I think it's a really good question <laughs> because as we approach these things called the gospels, there's this question that's asked in one of the next gospels, which is the gospel of John. And, and the question that's asked is, well, then how do we receive joy? That after we've gone through these two, essentially, I guess you'd call them cataclysmic things of change and suffering, what do we do next? And so there's this question, this question of how do we receive joy? And I want to be very clear with you real quick that the word joy is not just this word happiness. It's not just this word for feeling really good. The word joy, it seems, as the Gospel of John 
talks about it, this idea of joy is something much more holistic. It is something that, um, to use maybe the word peace, to use the word wholeness, to use the word enlightenment. Uh, these are all potential words that I think could be used. But, but the idea is that we are not simply talking about the emotion of joy. We're talking about this place of arrival. That as humans, we, we, how do we receive this thing that potentially makes us whole? It's a really hard question for me, um, especially after my own um, change in my life. I don't know if I've gone through a lot of suffering, but I've gone through change because the next question is, well, then what next? And, and it's fascinating that this is the next part of the conversation. Because for me, I've found some pretty intense barriers to becoming a holistic, peaceful, enlightened human and I wonder if I'll even arrive at any of those places, but there's some, there's some barriers that I've discovered along the way towards this third step in maybe, if you want to call it a process, this, this third place that the, another gospel takes us of joy, of wholeness, of peace, of enlightenment. The first, the first barrier that I personally face is this barrier of skepticism that maybe at one point in our lives, we were at a place of peace. We were at a place of wholeness, of enlightenment, of the word joy. Maybe maybe at one time in our lives, we had this thing called joy, or at least we thought we were at a place of it. And then change and suffering happen, and we're no longer in this, I guess, elevated position <laughs> or this place of enlightenment, joy. And so... To then reapproach the topic comes with some skepticism, some difficulty. And again, this is just what I've experienced, but there's some skepticism in it of, well, if I was there once, um, will I be able to go back? If I've already had the chance to be there and lost it, is there any way to go back? Or was it even real the first time? Is it even attainable again? There's this intense skepticism that I face about this idea of wholeness. Wondering if it's even possible. Wondering if I'll ever arrive. Wondering if my experiences maybe aren't going to shape me in the proper way. There's just this intense skepticism as a barrier. And, and every time I potentially face, or not face, every time I potentially uh, approach or embrace something that is joyful or whole or enlightened or peaceful, uh, my skepticism can kick in and say, well, that's just temporary that won't last. It's not going to last like it did the first time. Why would it stick around a second time? And so there's this skepticism that I've found in the midst of this pursuit of joy. The second barrier that I know I've faced and I've experienced this barrier of resentment or anger, if you will. Part of that stems from my observation of other people and the ones who seem to have this thing called joy. I get, I don't know, bitter or angry that they've arrived at such a place where in the midst of their change and suffering that they're okay and I'm not. I remember um, this conversation I had with Matt Blakesley. I, uh, I live with Matt um, in the midst of everything going on in my life. And because of that, we've become very, very close friends, intimate friends. I've become so close to them that um, 
Kate calls me her sister wife that I'm, I'm just that close to, to Kate and Matt and the kids now. And, and it's really fun. So Matt and I just get all these opportunities randomly throughout the week to have intimate, beautiful conversation. And so one night we're driving, I think back to the house and I'm telling him about my emotions in the midst of, you know, my recent split with my wife, Michaela and how we're going different directions in life. And I just told him, I said, I just don't think I'm ever going to find anyone like her again. And so why would I ever give love a chance again? And, you know, kind of just going off on this, I guess you could call it just pity for myself. And Matt very abruptly stopped me. He said, you can't use that language anymore. He said, that, that's resentment. That's angry language. Because I didn't notice at the time, but my language was starting to turn hostile towards the idea of a relationship or another person or maybe this idea of being whole again. Because I'll be honest, I mean, in, in my marriage, I felt like there was some wholeness to it, some joy, if you will some peace. And so there's resentment that can happen that when we lose something or something changes or where we experience suffering, there's this resentment that can then build a barrier between us and the potential of ever receiving that joy again. So there's skepticism and there's resentment. And then there's this piece of it that I think is one of the more intense human emotions and human experiences, which is fear. And I, I lump fear into this because you know, to receive joy, wholeness, enlightenment, peace, to, to receive this idea of joy means that we probably have to move from where we are to another place. That's very uncomfortable. I think there's an element of fear in that. I also think that there's an element of fear in it because for us to receive this joy, as I'll talk about here in a little bit, requires us to move far outside of ourselves and experience some things we've never experienced before. And it very quickly gets to be a fearful experience because it's so foreign. And so it seems to me that, that the, the barriers between us and joy, us and this idea of wholeness, enlightenment, peace, that the, the barriers blocking us are skepticism, resentment, and fear. And those are three of our options that we have as we're trying to receive joy. So either we, either we engage these three things and we manipulate the type of joy that we engage, or we completely avoid it. And it seems like in the line of thinking that we've been experiencing through this series that there is a potential fourth option. That is not skepticism, resentment, or fear. But the other option for us is to be open. But it seems like the gospel of John is pointing people towards this idea of openness. That for us to receive joy, for us to grow into this place far beyond ourselves, we need to be open. And I'm going to throw a quick disclaimer out there. (laughs) Um... I feel like I'm the last guy that should be giving this talk because in the midst of openness, there is this, there are these people we have in our lives who we know are just receptive to the world around them, that they are the most open people. They're open, they're inviting, they're accepting. And, and at the end of the day, I must admit that I lay my head on my pillow 
And there's a very difficult realization that maybe I'm just not that open. Maybe I have too many pre-existing ideas about the people in the world that close me off. And that's tough for me. And so I want to throw that out there that maybe I'm the last guy that should be given this talk about being open. Um, but it has been an experience for me to study it and try and understand it and maybe be better about it. So what does it look like for us to be open? That to receive joy, to engage this place beyond ourselves, beyond where we've been, that after change and suffering, there is a place of wholeness for us to experience, a place of joy. We have to be open. And the first place I look at in the book of John is this story of a wedding. And I think this wedding invites us to do something really special. And the first way that we get to be open is we have to feel the feels. That's right. You got to feel the feels. That to start on this journey towards being receiving joy and being open, that we have to feel all the feels. So there's this story I'd like to tell you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Wow. I jumped down a paragraph. I'm reading too far. Back up the story. All right. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, we're at a wedding, don't forget. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's a unique setting that's picked for this story, a wedding, a place where people feel the feels. And what's even more interesting is that there's a symbolic story told of a transformation of water to wine, that there is a transition of water to wine, something being, and not just wine, the best wine. There is this transition of something becoming better. And I love that the setting is a wedding because we've all been to a wedding before. The backdrop for this is a wedding and a wedding is a place where we feel the feels. There is joy on a wedding day. There is excitement on a wedding day. There is celebration on a wedding day. But for some of us, there's also feelings of skepticism. Oh, these two won't make it. <laughs> feelings of resentment. Why can't that be me? Feelings of fear. Will that ever be me? 
It goes beyond that too. There's other feelings of maybe jealousy or frustration or anger because guess what? We're human and at weddings, weird things happen. Families and friends get involved in different conversations and weddings can be some of the greatest celebrations on earth and also some of the worst for people. So there's this backdrop of a wedding that is told. And in the midst of that wedding, there is this transition, this transformative thing that happens from this water to wine. And I wonder if the backdrop of this being a wedding for this transition of water to wine is a, is, a, is a story that's important for us to understand that for us to move towards people to receive joy, to be open. What if just like at the wedding in Cana, when something transformative happens, we have to be in the setting where we are willing to feel all the feels. Alexander Shia, the guy who um, has done a lot of work um, that we've, you know, we've done a lot of reading about this guy and through this journey of the gospels, he wrote this book and I want to read you this excerpt from the book. Cause it's pretty impressive to me. It says the third path's capacity to hold ambiguity means it can and does contain everything. So what he's saying is that this idea of joy to receive it means it contains everything. And he goes on to say this, it contains joy or sorry, it holds joy, it holds conflict, it holds boredom, it holds compassion, it holds cruelty, it holds ecstasy, it holds pain, it holds love, it holds cynicism, it holds hope, it holds misery, it holds striving, it holds hate, it holds peace. In it is every gradation of light and dark of each day and every passage of the seasons. It becomes our full human complexity. It invites, accepts, and celebrates each and every aspect of our human enigma. What if, for us to be open, the first step, or sorry, what if for us to experience and receive joy, the first step in this being open process is for us to feel all the feels, to embrace our full humanness, that just as we would attend a wedding and feel all the feelings you can feel at a wedding, where something transformative happens, we have to feel all the feels in our own life first. Being open means we feel the feels. And from there, we move to a different place. Once we start feeling the feels and our life starts to transition as if it were water to wine, Sometimes this skepticism, resentment, and fear can pop up. And it's this voice that tells us that, guess what? You're not worthy of that. That that place of arrival, that place of joy, is reserved for only the best, only the greatest, only those who will work for it, right? We've all heard that. But what if there's a different narrative that's told in the Gospel of John, that it's not just reserved for a few people, but what if it truly is available to all of us? This place of joy. There's another story in the Gospel of John that I think opens this up and opens the door for everyone. And that story goes like this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. 
And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. I find this story fascinating because I think as we move towards this experience of joy, of towards peace, towards enlightenment, that there's these walls that prevent us and tell us that we're not worthy. There are voices of skepticism, resentment, and fear. And in the Gospel of John, there's this unique story being told that, that you, you are worthy. That just as Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and even someone who didn't seem worthy, who would betray Jesus, the narrative takes this arc that you are worthy. And not just you, but every single person around you too. That there is this worthiness placed on us. That for some reason in this Judeo-Christian narrative, the creator looks at its creation and says, you are all worthy to receive this thing called joy. That no matter the skepticism, no matter the, the fear or resentment, no matter any of it, you are worthy. I find these two things fascinating because it, to be open, to feel the feels and to know that you're worthy and other people are worthy, we arrive at this unique spot. And this unique spot is that everyone is welcome at the table. Now, one of the things I didn't do was tell you the historical background of the book of John. And I'm saving it for this spot because there's this unique thing happening in the book of John historically. The book of John is written in this city called Ephesus. It's the fourth largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire. It sits on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea in what is now Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus, compared to some of these other places, is, is this unique cultural melting pot. It's a large port city with a bustling slave trade, so it's very wealthy. And ideas are flowing in and out of it all the time. And so Paul arrives in Ephesus long before this gospel is written. This gospel is written between 95 and 105 AD. And Paul actually arrives 50 years before that and lays the groundwork for some of this this Christian talk, if you will. But he does it out of this heart of Judaism. So Paul, speaking out of his own experience, talks about Judaism and then talks about Christianity and is introducing this idea to these groups of people. 
And because Ephesus is such this eclectic, rich, melting pot, it takes in all ideas. And so they take in the groundwork that Paul lays. And so people kind of slowly start jumping on board with this thing. But then John comes along and writes this gospel out of his experience in Christianity, or out of his experience out of Judaism and Christianity, and he, he kind of puts this unique spin on it. Then he starts writing this really mystical book, this book about this character named Jesus. And what's interesting is the tone of the book, the tone of the gospel, takes on this, this one of everyone being welcome to be a part of it. Because what's going on in these early worlds, like even in the midst of all these ideas being shared in Ephesus, there's this intense tribalism that people experience. That once you adhere to your religious belief, that's where you stay. And so a lot of the religious beliefs of the time had this intense tribalism to them that we're right, you're wrong, um, we're in, you're out. And not to mention Judaism is very guilty of this too. So there's all this really intense tribalism in this very eclectic, rich, bustling, culturally beautiful city. A lot of people, a lot of ideas. And John comes along and he starts writing this narrative of this person named Jesus. And he puts the spin on his narrative that says, all are welcome at the table. That there is this underlying idea of openness to the book to feel the feels, to remember that we're all worthy. And then he, he puts the feather in the hat. I don't even know what you would call it. He puts the exclamation point on it all with everyone being welcome at the table. And he strictly, he, he very fiercely and aggressively addresses this idea of tribalism. And he does it through this character named Nicodemus. Now this is John chapter 3. And there's a really popular verse in John chapter 3. I bet you can guess what verse it is that unfortunately has been used for a long time to exclude people from this narrative of Christianity. But watch how John tells this story of this character Jesus and this character Nicodemus. He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This is a top dog, by the way. This is a guy who knows his stuff. This is a guy that is very steeped in the tribalism of Judaism, believing that they are the correct religion, that their God will redeem the world, that Jesus is not the Messiah that everyone else is saying he is. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, You're a moron. It's a metaphor. Just kidding. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So Jesus is laying this groundwork for this person, Nicodemus, this guy that would be considered on the outermost edges of 
what Christianity is supposed to be. A tribalistic old thinker. Someone who's not up with the times. Someone who can't fathom that things would change. And there's an invitation then given to Nicodemus. That this character named Jesus opens up the table for even someone on the fringe who has a hard time changing their thinking to the table. Jesus creates this invitation of openness that everyone is welcome at the table. And here comes the such, in my opinion, misused verse of all time. For God so loved the world, this is Jesus speaking, that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he was not, he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. What Jesus is doing is opening the table. He's making the table bigger. That even in the face of intense tribalism, the story the Gospel of John is written to look at that tribalism and say, no, you're all actually welcome at this table. And so what does that mean for us? That to receive joy, to receive this thing called joy, peace, enlightenment. What if it means for us that we have to constantly make our table bigger? To invite the people who maybe we don't want at the table to still have a seat. What if the remedy for things like skepticism, resentment, and fear are to be met with openness? To feel the feels To know that we and the people around us are worthy to arrive at a place greater than where we are now. And to do that, we must open our table to everyone we can. I find this gospel so fascinating. That the narrative of this gospel is unification, joy, enlightenment. And if I'm being completely honest, in the midst of my departure from Christianity into agnosticism, I must say, this book of the Bible is the one thing that maybe still has me clinging to an idea of Christianity. Because it is this idea of openness. I think that it's it's this idea of openness that allows us to potentially arrive at the place of joy, enlightenment, peace, harmony. It's openness that does that. Here's what I leave you with. What would it look like for you to be the kind of human who is willing to feel all the feels you need to? That just like a wedding for a backdrop where an important transition happens, an important transformation, that you are willing to feel all the feels, to be human, to own them, to acknowledge them, to feel them, to know that they are a crucial part of who you are. To also acknowledge in the midst of your humanness and all of those feels that you are a worthy creature to receive this thing called joy. And so are the people around you. 
and that you as a human have this unique opportunity to be making your table bigger for the sake of receiving this joy. That all are welcome into this joy. And most importantly for you, one of the most beautiful ways you get to find it is to make your own table bigger and invite people into it. Even the people who can't understand it, who don't want to understand it, who are on the fringe of it, the people who are the old thinkers, the people who are tribalistic, the people who maybe don't want to be a part of it, but they're still welcome at your table. I wonder what it would be like for us to potentially receive joy if we could be the most open people possible. My hope for you is that you've got some good stuff to think about and that you also have a delightful week. As always, thanks for letting me share my thoughts and my reflections and my ramblings with you. Um, seems to be good for my mental space at times. So thank you. Sure do love you guys, and I will catch you later. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, if there's anything we can do for you, please reach out on social media or through our website at cmykchurch.com. Also, while there, you can find out more about who we are, where we're headed, and how you can get plugged in to give with this unique experimental church. Have a great week, and we hope to see you soon.